0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I'm recording from. I pay my respects to the Cameregal people and their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from and extend this respect to any First Nations listeners.
1: I think food is just such a wonderful element of conversation, of gathering people, and it doesn't matter what walk of life you're from or part of, put food on the table, get a bunch of people around it and so much can happen. (laughs) Hi, I'm
0: Sarah Malik, your host for My Ramadan, a podcast about how we experience Ramadan and Eid in modern multicultural Australia. Today, we celebrate all things food and Iftar. I talked to former MasterChef contestant Amina el Shafe and cross-cultural consultant Dasneem Chopra on what Iftar looks like for them. Welcome to the show, Dasneem and Amina. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you too. <laughs> thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you both. We'll start with you, Dasneem. You know, you grew up in country Victoria in Bendigo. Tell me about the Iftars that you grew up with.
2: Look, for the most part, was back in the country town in Bendigo, I'll be honest, it was in the late 70s and early 80s and, and late 80s. So it was a good 12 years that we were there and they were very much a very family affair for the most part. So my parents would, every Ramadan, would be a thing. There'd be decorations. We knew that this month was the lunar calendar for the Muslim calendar. So we learned what the Islamic months of the year were. In that process we do little exercises like have to write the names down and make a little calendar so that that we'd learn the process then when Ramadan came there'd be decorations up on the wall uh, there'd be traditional foods that my mother would make only in the month of Ramadan and the, the classic was this little sort of French toast thing sweet bread that was was a ritual to break the fast with it was punctuated with these little traditions that only happened at that time of the year and then of course we'd fast and break the fast together as well going to school while I was fasting in a country town, was another experience altogether. explained to the, all the Aussie kids, they all thought I was a bit strange and a bit odd for it. Didn't really ask me much more than that beyond not even water. You know that that sort of was definitely an early highlight. Now, Amina, you know your dad is Egyptian and
0: your mom is a Korean convert to Islam. So tell me a bit about what your iftar's were like growing up.
1: Um- I think in retrospect, it was fairly quiet. Um, both my parents were first um, generation immigrants to the country and we didn't have extended family. So we were quite nuclear in terms of celebrating and um, observing Ramadan. Uh, both my parents were you know, employed as well during Ramadan. My mum was a registered nurse. And so, you know, we didn't always have iftar together as a family. Quite often she was a shift worker. There were some afternoons or some evenings where she wasn't home to break fast. So you know, it was um, uh, quite an interesting, sometimes a lonely experience during Ramadan, but progressively during the years and as we got older, my mum did shift her working hours and she tried to negotiate hours with work so that she could be home for most of the iftadas or she'd take annual leave during Ramadan. Then that way we had that family experience, which I thought was really nice. But like what Tasneem was saying, you know, like there were only certain foods that came out on Ramadan. I don't know Why? why we do that to ourselves because they're sometimes the best foods and it's torture like you've got to wait another 12 months for it um especially the sweets yeah i think for me a
0: pakistani ramadan always involves this red rose sherbet syrup called ruhavzar and you you drink it with milk and, you know, um, basil seeds yeah. and jelly Yum. and noodles and it's just this very syrupy, sweet yeah. It's a party. Kind of milk it's a party in a glass. It is. <laughs> it's a party in <laughs> a glass and it's one of those things which you do not have outside of Ramadan but you definitely have to have in Ramadan. And I'm wondering if there's any particular foods for you both that are very iconically Ramadan,
1: Amina. Um, yeah, so we have um, in Arab um, cooking this um, really lovely sweet called atayf which are these yeast pancakes. Um, either served fresh um, as they are, or then they get stuffed with clotted cream or nuts, and then deep fried and then thrown into syrup. They're so delicious, and similar to what you're saying. You know, a drink that we sometimes break fast on, khamaradin, um, which is like an apricot puree with dried fruits and nuts through it, and that. So they're definitely my top top-listed... Sweets or Ramadan foods.
0: The apricot drink that you mentioned that has uh, quite a special meaning for you, doesn't it, Amina?
1: Yeah, the khamradin or amradin is quite um, nostalgic to me because uh, from my memories um, going back to Egypt and being around my grandmother when she was alive, she would make that during Ramadan, um, served in these little glasses, and it was just the most loveliest thing to break your fast on. You know that sweet hit you get from it, the textures of the nuts and the and the dried fruit um and it just sets the appetite for eating the mains oh i love it and is that something that you make for your family as a way to kind of connect with that heritage yeah absolutely um i definitely make it for my family now um, it's something that i've taken on you know my husband's lebanese so it's not a big thing for him but um he's also adopted it now so <laughs> sorry they haven't got a choice but they're in they're going to enjoy it every i done now <laughs> You better
2: drink this apricot drink. <laughs> I love it. When you're cooking, it's your rules, right? It's your rules. Oh, you well,
1: that's right. Whatever's on the table goes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know, Taz, I was
0: watching you. You kind of nod yearningly to some of those descriptions of food. Is
2: there something that really hits the spot for you during Ramadan that you really love to eat? I've picked up on the real desi tradition of samosas in Ramadan, which I don't actually even make. I don't. I don't make them any time of the year. And to be honest. To, let's be honest, I don't make them in Ramadan, I order them, okay? Me and thousands like me. So I'm going to own it, okay? Busy person and I'm happy to support an entrepreneur who's doing it. So that's that's my reasoning. So yet yeah, fried samosas. Fried samosas to break the fast with along with the mitti pan, which is the sweet bread that I learned from my mother, which I only make in Ramadan because it's fastidious and tedious and once a year is enough, okay? <laughs> that's why we also make these things in Ramadan and no other time. The last thing that I've also cottoned on with thanks to a really lovely Pakistani neighbor that I had for a few years was our fruit chart. Basically, it's fruit salad with this, like, can I say devilishly lovely uh, spicy mix that you mix into the fruit salad. I mean, Sarah, you know what that is. I mean, it's a typically Pakistani thing, which I discovered, and I've taken that on board because then I feel like I have the refreshing zest of fruit coupled with the friedness of the samosa. And then the sweetness of the bread. And that's all my three food groups. Well, they're my groups. Oh, wow.
1: That sounds so good. And I'm
2: happy. Oh, I love her description as
0: well. Like I'm like, I want to eat that right now. But, yes, Pakistanis, anything sweet, we'll just throw spice at it and then just make it some kind of fusion food. Like fruit, we'll throw some spice at it. Juice, we'll throw some spice at it.
2: (laughs) Then it becomes a dish. Yep. (laughs) You put spice on a fruit and it's like... That's an actual dish now. So that's <laughs> Yes.
0: It's not just fruit salad, it's it's fruit chart. Okay. So enjoy it, guys. Oh nice. <laughs> I, um, and you know, you're both busy women and I think about, you know, the craziness my mom would get up to, like making bread in the morning for all of us. And, you know, it was just hectic and i think of myself and my lifestyle and for me it would be being more sustainable with iftars and doing something that fits my schedule so what does iftar look like for you both today
2: for me it's manically rushed because the days are short you are crabbing in work with a meal time that is considerably earlier than any other time of the year as well means the, the need to be prepared and ahead of schedule is, is paramount. So whereas I might have started cooking at 6 o'clock in the past or anyone started cooking it in my household because I, I live with grown adult children, meal prep might have started later. Now everything needs to be in train before 5 p.m. in order to not miss the miss the deadline. So it, you know what it resembles? If start time in my place resembles the last two minutes of a Chef episode, which I Amina mean could relate to, where everyone is flying around getting plates and glasses, and there's a t- there's a countdown of the last minute, and then no matter what you're doing, your food's ready or not. When the time has come, everyone grabs a date. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's like plates down, right? Grab the date, and then you break it. Have your date. Have your water. Break your fast, and you know, hopefully food's ready. If it's not, you know you're just gonna eat whatever's whatever's you can muster. But ideally, it's it's like it's this manic rush to meet the to beat the clock. That's what it is. Oh, I mean so what does your kitchen look like is it plates down and manic
0: rush like when you were on the show
1: uh no half the time it's like <laughs> oh we'll break your fast and just wait <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not done <laughs> so, <laughs> I've gone overtime, um but <laughs> yeah I, I don't do shift work anymore as a nurse so that's an advantage I do work during the week though So on the days that I'm working, um, I try meal prep ahead of time and um, that's something that I've had to really pick on the last couple of years with little ones now Um, and I find it's just easier to try and um, beat the rush time hours as well, you know, coming from work to home. And at least my my husband kind of can help out by starting to heat the food on the cooktop or in the oven, so that makes a big help. But on the days off, yeah, I will make the effort because i'm only part-time which is great so i will make the effort to try and make something really nice and decent but with two kids under the age of four it can get a bit mental <laughs> trying to prepare a nice meal yeah
0: and i'm wondering like for you both has ramadan and iftar kind of changed your relationship to food and family at all um just
2: i think particularly in the aftermath of ramadan you become much more mindful of quantities of what you're preparing and wastage particularly in Ramadan you that ethic of understanding the imperative of respecting the food and I think that's important in informing healthy eating habits and healthy behavior so only eating as much as you need only preparing and buying as much as you need and, and having a re- renewed appreciation for what the, what the value of that brings to you and, and to community as well. I think as your children get older as well and they participate more in the preparation and of course in the fasting, but in the preparation and the, the broader scope of what Ramadan means beyond just not eating, but what it actually means, then I think the benefit of that month is something that lingers long after the 30 days
0: this whole podcast is about how we do ramadan today and you know keeping traditions but also letting go of certain traditions or ways of doing things that don't work which for me was you know women doing all the work, which is not something that I want to continue. And I mean, I love, you know, I think it's so lovely to hear you talk honestly about your schedule and your lifestyle, because I think a lot of people would be thinking, Master Chef Amina, if she's, you know, she must have it all together. And, you know, if you're also, you know, also trying to make things work and, and, you know, juggling a bunch of things, that's so, such a relief to hear. So I'm wondering, you know, for you, how has Ramadan and
1: Iftar changed your relationship with food and family? um my relationship with food has also been about um what works best as well you know after a full day of fasting what sits in the stomach a lot more comfortably and understanding what works for your body and your family and their health. So you know, quite often for me during Ramadan, it's about the choices of food. We like to have soup to start off because it's just nice and easy on the on the stomach. Something fresh, um, and I try to avoid really heavy meals because I just find that you just you feel quite uncomfortable after a full day of fasting. Your stomach is already quite small in in the sense of accepting food. So. It's understanding um, what foods work best um, after fasting. The other thing is for me, um, the children as they're growing up, having that relationship with family around to break fast, I think there's, there's such a nice element of having the family together to break fast after, you know, after a long day. And I think that's a, a stark difference to, I guess, for me, the last maybe or oh, probably the last 10-ish years where I've been doing shift work and since finishing shift work and having kids, you know, shift work can be really detrimental as well in terms of how we experience Ramadan because if you're not home with the family, you're breaking fast on the ward or in the hospital, wherever you work as a shift worker, it can be quite lonesome and quite rushed too, so there's no enjoyment. So it just depends on your workplace too and you just miss out on that experience of breaking fast with the family um, or friends. I'm glad that part of my life is over. But you know what? They used to pay me out big time on the on the ward. Oh yeah, you know, she's working, especially on night shift she's working during the night, she's eating, she's you know feasting at night and then she just sleeps through the day. What a treat, But um <laughs> not anymore. She's like this this night shift business works perfectly for you. Know, you can just do
0: perfectly. you can just do Ramadan, you know, in yeah. hospital. <laughs> Don't feel <right>? a thing. <laughs> <laughs> just just eating that date by yourself. How wonderful. Yeah gosh no it definitely relates to me as a journalist I remember being a young journalist and you know working shift work and just eating a date at a press conference you know and um and yeah it's it's not easy because you are you know you really feel like you're doing it on your own when Ramadan's supposed to be a collective experience and a community one so you do feel like you're missing out a bit um and you know iftars are huge social events there's lots of cooking and there's lots of community and there's lots of events and corporate iftars and community iftars. And Tasneem, you've been to a lot of these. Tell me about what your Ramadan schedule can look like.
2: In the past, it was probably a lot more, I wouldn't say chaotic, but but very, very busy. When the corporate iftar or community iftar culture was taking off, it, it was a novelty. So I was saying yes to all the invitations. I might have been having like 15 events which is a lot right as the years have gone on i've i've cut down the events to now i'm doing maybe three or four because it's not sustainable simply in terms of what the month is meant to do you're meant to wind down you're supposed to be engaged you so i feel much more in a sort of spiritual esoteric stillness rather than this constant negotiating travel and then parking and getting to the venue then scoffing down your food then rushing off to tarawi kind of loses its, its its zing that said The events are a beautiful networking opportunity. And you do see people at Ramadan, Iftars, in the community and corporate sector that you only see at that time of the year. So there is that. And Sarah, you and I met at an Iftar. Let's not forget. We did, we did. We met at the US Embassy, Iftar in Melbourne. You just never know what it's going to yield. And so I, I, I do enjoy the spontaneity of these catch-ups and the meetups with people in an environment that is very blessed and very joyous. And the food is always amazing. Let's not pretend I didn't have to cook it. I, didn't, I love any meal I didn't have to cook. But I think in terms of managing my spiritual praxis, I've had to pull it back a bit because it gets crazy.
0: Yes. And so I'm wondering though, how did COVID change your relationship with those iftars? There was a bit of a shift for you after that.
2: What Ramadan taught me during lockdown, what Iftar taught me, was a renewed sense of connection. And I did have the whole day to prepare for food, as opposed to a rush manic master chef hour because I was working from home, if I was working at all. Because, again, COVID really threw a spanner in the works on on many different fronts. So the dinner would be ready. The kids would turn up, come out of their little rooms at the set time. We'd break our fast. We'd take our time to eat the food and and enjoy the meal much more mindfully and meaningfully. And you know what? I miss it. I don't miss lockdown, but I I do miss Iftar and Ramadan and lockdown because I think it was the only Iftar in memory where for all 30 days I would see my kids every single night. And we would eat together every single night. So I'm um, I'm so grateful to have that as a memory. Uh, it's an endearing memory that and an enduring memory as well. So um, silver silver lining to lockdown.
0: Mm. I mean, for you, the idea of like food and connectedness and people, you're probably always making those links. Is Ramadan kind of takes that to another level as well in terms of coming together with people over
1: food. I think also being, you know, now quite active on social media, it's also an opportunity to share recipes and to share food ideas and to share what people are experiencing in terms of the food context of um, Ramadan. I think that's really lovely too, because, you know, you get so many wonderful ideas and you see so many people on Instagram, for example, sharing what they've cooked, the feast that they've made, the family interactions. There's all these wonderful memories being made on social media between families or individuals. So, you know, from that food front, it's quite engaging on my end.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, you know, you talked about growing up, it was a bit lonely for you. Yeah. And now kind of we have the opportunity to make our own traditions, traditions that work for us. And that sometimes comes with borrowing from other cultures too. Like I yeah. love that I don't have a Pakistani iftar anymore. Like yeah. I make fatah or I make hummus yeah. Yeah, or I have kebabs right, yeah. or I, I just, you know, I, I like to mix it up because yeah. I think I live in this, you know, diverse country and I'm always borrowing from my friends and having yeah. friends yeah. over. <laughs> it's um, so nice. It's something that's so <laughs> lovely. Um And I'm wondering how you both kind of adapt and evolve your iftars for modern Australia, if there's been any
2: interesting experiences to name. Yeah, I've had occasions where I have in the past inv- invited some, like non-Muslim friends who were very curious about the Iftar process. And so like literally invited themselves and said, when can we come over during Ramadan? And I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing that now. So we did. And I, I like they enjoyed the novelty of it all. Of course, they appreciated the food. And very, they were very obviously generous with their understanding and learning of, of of all the different processes, we broke the fast, how we had the date, had the meal, we'd go to pray, come back, and how shortly after the meal that some of the kids or all the kids might, including myself, might even leave for Tarawi prayer. So they were okay with that. They were there to really quietly and respectfully observe and learn. So I did appreciate that opportunity. I've also taken the opportunity where I can to call over, uh, I, I shouldn't call them the misfits and the wayfarers, but basically it's those people who are on the fringes who don't have family here or on their own. It could be students, it could just be, you know, single mums or friends um, who you would think to invite because you wanted them to have a sense of something bigger than just one or two people at, at the at the breaking of the fast time. So I don't do it as much as I would like to, but I certainly will endeavour to, you know, every Ramadan have at least one or two iftars with, with that group.
0: Oh, I love that. It's so true because... Yeah. Not everyone has big communities. Sometimes people are on the peripheries of Muslim communities or they're converts or they don't feel at ease in big gatherings or feel welcome. So that's actually quite beautiful. I love that idea. Um, Amina, I wonder if that resonates with you at all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think um, back in the shift days um, of nursing um, quite often I'd bring extra food for example if I'm breaking fast but often it's sweets so people can share and whatever um, between the nurses and that was a really nice way of educating, you know, what Ramadan's about because they'd be like, oh, what's all this for? And then that's how the conversation starts. But I think admittedly I haven't had a lot of opportunity to do invitations as such for a lot of people um, outside of um, the Muslim faith but – you know, for us, it's about the sweets during AIDS. And that's the opportunity to then, you know, for the neighbors, for example, to share sweets and to say, okay, well, this is our celebration. We're celebrating it and we want you to share or be part of it um, and sharing sweets, for example. But, um, you know, going back to the social media front, that sharing of ideas of Ramadan, I think, is really important because I would say 70% of my audience on social media are non Muslims. And I find that it's such a really good opportunity to say, well, it's now Ramadan, this is what I'm making for the family, and this is part of what we're feasting on, you know, and I think that starts, again, a conversation, but also maybe just that education for non-Muslims to understand the significance of the month. But, you know, that also comes at the patience of my husband because half the time when I put the food on the table to have a start and, you know, on there taking my photos, it's like, oh, for God's sake, just hurry up, man. We want to eat. Like, just yeah. hurry <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> no, social media is very important.
0: <laughs> Behind every glamorous food picture there's a hangry husband, right, Amina?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love it. it. <laughs>
0: um, and, you know, like it's so true because you share so much of yourself through food. And we saw that on Master Chef. like you share who you are, you share your culture, you share your identity, you share your family, you share so much of yourself. And it's such a wonderful kind of easy, soft and innocuous way for us to share ourselves, you know, through the food that we're making. And so... If there is something that it seems really simple but it is very powerful isn't it just uh, the act of eat- eating it and sharing it with yep. other people
1: yeah i think food is just such a wonderful element of conversation of gathering people and it doesn't matter what walk of life you're from or part of um put food on the table get a you know a bunch of people around it and so much can happen <laughs>
0: Um, I might actually do some rapid-fire questions, actually, before we we end the podcast, all related to Iftar. So the oddest place that you've broken your fast,
2: Tasneem? The strangest place was actually during a live recording of the drum. I was, I remember being on the panel during Ramadan and I was not going to take the opportunity, but I thought I'm sure I'll manage it somehow. But I was, I was sitting there on a panel, obviously, with guests either side, including the host, mindful of the clock, while I was answering questions, so I was multitasking, answering complicated question, looking at the clock, looking at my water, and waiting for the time to tick over. And when it did tick over, and I knew it was time to break the fast, I just casually leaned over and took my glass of water, which they had very nicely kept on the on the drum table, and took a sip of water, went down, and just broke my fast like a boss. And I did it. So I'll, I'll never forget that. Nobody knew, and it's, <laughs> it's not about making you know a big deal out of it. Say, like, everyone breaking my fast now. I didn't. I just. I went with the moment and I did it. But, yeah, I remember the uh, – I remember being very self-conscious that I was fasting. If I break my fast, will anyone notice? I thought, no, it's just a sip of water. But, yeah, stealthily done. Talking about, about Bob Hawke at the time too, I remember it very, very clearly. So.
0: I love that. That is such a celebrity Dasneem Chopra <laughs> mic drop moment. Like, look, I was just casually on live today <laughs> yeah. and then I had to break my fast and I was talking about Bob Hawke and
2: point is yeah, I'm showing it. that we can we can <laughs> fast and panel at the same time, Sarah. That's what I'm trying to say. It doesn't stop you from doing what you do.
0: I love it. That is the most iconic fast break I've heard of. And Amina for you the oddest uh, place you've broken your fast.
1: Probably the ward. Yeah, one of the wards that I used to work on. <laughs> Um, in the tea room or by myself.
0: <laughs> I know, I can hear, I, I relate to that so deeply. It's like, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the food that you miss the most during
1: fasting, Amina? Um, I don't know what it is, but I crave watermelon. <laughs> And the other thing is just don't put me in a grocery shop of any sort while I'm fasting because I end up trying to overbuy because you just think, oh, I want to eat this, I want to eat that, I want to eat this and I want to eat that. So, yeah, watermelon and don't put me in a grocery store. <laughs> Who bought this 20
0: kilo of basmati rice? Mm. <laughs> <That's exactly it. laughs> I just need for you, what is the food that you miss the most? You know, it's it's just the coffee. Oh. it's It's the morning coffee you Melbourne Muslims oh, yeah. but you need to do a whole
2: coffee and Ramadan special <laughs> because you have a special relationship with coffee <laughs> the, the, the tragedy is you, you I can't have coffee after four o'clock because then I won't sleep decaf yeah I know but I don't, I always forget to buy it and then it, it's the whole month just disappears. So, yeah, I go almost without coffee for 30 days, which is quite amazing. But then, like on E, they'll have like four coffees. <laughs> Ivy drip, to- <laughs> drip
0: of coffee and needed right here. Um, and I'm wondering if you guys can remember your
1: most beautiful iftar experience, Amina. Oh, most beautiful. Um, experiencing a couple of days of Ramadan in Egypt was phenomenal. And I think the thing that we don't have here as much as the nightlife post the fasting, you know, I think in the Muslim countries during Ramadan after we finish fasting, the nightlife is just wonderful, you know. It just goes on till three or four in the morning. Um, so I think it's those experiences.
0: Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Um, I just name your most memorable Iftar experience. I
2: think you can't get past the excitement of the Heldon Street. Ramadan night things which I went for the first time last year.
1: Now it's got you're an addict.
2: And that I mean that it it, can I say it lived up to the hype because I was a bit worried about what are these camel burgers and these long queues for these bizarre things but I did I enjoyed the Bengali food the the Pakistani food the Arabic food the the kenefe my most watched ever TikTok reel is from the kenefe guy in Haldon Street the (laughs) camera but Ramadan, so that's that's proof for you right there that it's popular. But in terms of the most impactful Iftar experience I had was, again, last year when I attended an Iftar run by a refugee collective who made the best food I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I think I believe it was Iraqi food. And the speakers were a series of women who had just arrived from Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Um, who who had fled and come here and you spoke of their journey experience and so I think the whole event was orchestrated so mindfully the food was beautiful the company was all very supportive and understanding and the presenters were just heartwarming so yeah I think the simplicity and the humility of that event coupled with fabulous food and a great cause was you know, hard to beat nice
0: oh beautiful that sounds perfect yeah it sounds like a real iftar of meaning and connection and kind of welcoming the stranger thank you both for being on the podcast it's been such a pleasure I really loved having you both on thank
1: you Sarah it's been a bus thank you Sarah that was great fun and thank you Tasneem too
0: <laughs> Ramadan Kareem and thank you for listening the next episode of My Ramadan we talk about navigating fasting and work with journalist Najma Sambal and lawyer Sarah Mansour I hope you'll join me for it Hit the follow button in your podcast app and please share or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. This episode was presented by me, Sarah Malik. Our audio engineer is Jeremy Wilmot. Executive producers are Sarah Malik and Caroline Gates. If you want to get in touch, email myramadan at sbs.com.au. You can find My Ramadan in the SBS audio app or at sbs.com.au slash audio.